here with Father Matthew Kalth, and he's written a book on the sacraments. We had you on Life on the Rock, and that was a powerful little part you did on the sacraments mm. and, uh, and stressing their efficacious signs. It reminds me of uh, St. Thomas stresses that, doesn't he? In he his does, treatment. he does. And, um, and I thought it really highlights like Catholic theology, the difference between Catholics, Protestants. Um, can you talk about that again, the, the efficacious sign of a sacrament? Sure. Mm -hmm. So how do we know what God's doing in the history of salvation history in, in terms of what we can witness in the gospel? What we're obviously seeing is that every time that God does something, one of the biblical characters sort of puts a stone there or an altar there or calls it a certain name. Um, it becomes a holy place because God did something. He manifested something. How often do we read in the Psalms how they're hearkening back to a memory of one of his activities when he saved his people from Egypt and parted the Red Sea and when you led your people through the desert, etc. And how do you make those events in the past somehow in the present? But furthermore, how do you know what God's actually doing now? And so the, the sacraments, or the word sacramentum, as you know, just has lots of different meanings historically, but one of its principal meanings is a, is a sign. It's a sacred oath, it's a mystery, it's et cetera, but it's a sign. And any sign is something that signifies some other reality. So the word that I'm using right now, any word that I'm using right now is a, is a material sign. It's kind of a sacrament, right? Because it's, it's something material that you're hitting that's hitting your, your, your ears and your, your um, processing, but it's just a material reality. But it's conveying something spiritual. It's conveying to you a concept if you know the language. And so what our Lord does with the sacraments is he takes the elements that he's created and the elements that he's always known he was going to employ for the purposes of, of his salvation and makes them efficacious. So instead of... Um, a sign that might take place or a sacrament that might take place in the Old Testament, even something like circumcision or one of the other various signs of the covenant, they're not efficacious signs. Circumcision doesn't make Abraham our father in faith. It doesn't make him a child of God. Um, it's a sign. Whereas in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, God takes those elements that he chooses and with the meaning that they have intrinsic to them, so the natural sign of water for purity and the giving of life, or the natural sign of nourishment and joy, which comes to us from uh, bread and wine, or the, the natural sign of, of being set aside for a, a great task and, and, and as it were, um, offered up by like laying on of hands or oil, sign of strengthening, etc. These things have natural signs. They're speaking something to us. Um, they're conveying something immaterial by virtue of their intrinsic signification, their meaning. But similarly, we use then words that are spoken by the church that are spoken by Jesus in terms of the uniting a new sign, as it were, another word with the material sign. And that's what we have as, in terms of just the sacramentum tantum, as St. Thomas says, the sign alone. And when that takes place, they're efficacious for us if you have the proper minister. And then you have a whole new reality that they're imparting something that they're signifying. They don't just signify it. 
they impart it. So how do we know what grace God's giving us in baptism is different than the grace He's giving us in confirmation, different than the grace He's giving us in the Holy Eucharist, different than the grace He's giving us in, in holy orders, etc. You know it by virtue, A, of the material sign, and the further sign that's signified by the words imposed. And that's the grace you're receiving at the moment of that sacrament. It's also a grace that we talk about, at least in terms of Thomistic theology, that endures afterwards. Take, for example, the sacrament of penance. Um, we can say that the matter is sort of twofold, right? On the quasi-matter is the sins that someone's bringing between two persons, because sin is personal. And the, absol the, the absolution that comes um, with the confession of sins. But it's interesting that in the old days, the absolution used to happen during the, um, the act of contrition. And I, I find that interesting, principally, at least at first, I found it interesting because I thought it was a, a sort of abuse of the sacrament because I, I wasn't born in the old church. I didn't grow up in the old rite. And so when I went to older priests and they would do that, I thought that they were just trying to get finished with the, with the yeah. confession, not realizing that the reason, the intrinsic reason why the absolution was given at that moment is because the, the sacramentum et res, as Thomas says, the sign and the reality that you're getting at that moment is the grace of perfect contrition. And so since you're making your act of contrition, the priest is giving you absolution, meaning the efficacious sacrament is taking place, something's happening to you. And what it's attempting, what it's working on interiorly for you is the grace of perfect contrition. Now, the ultimate effect that resides after the sacrament's over, the grace that still resides in the soul, is that, of course, of justification, reconciliation with God. But that intimate moment when the penitent is making an act of contrition and the priest is absolving, whether it happens simultaneously or not, um, is, 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 is by definition powerful. Something is affected, not just a sign of being affected. So, for example, it's kind of become popular, at least it was when I was a younger priest, for people to write their sins down at retreats and things and then burn it, etc. It's very nice. It's a nice sign. It's just not efficacious. <laughs> it doesn't actually take them away. <laughs> right. So... Well, Angelica used to describe it might float up, half burned, and come down somewhere. <laughs> That's great. But yeah, I think that is, I, I think a lot of people might not realize that, you know, we need grace. Sacraments are giving us grace. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and we need grace to be holy and to be, so it's not just some kind of um, profession of our faith or something, mm -hmm. which, of course, it takes faith to Right, but them, not but... just willpower. Right, yeah. I, I teach at a seminary, rector of a seminary, and so one of the things I tell the guys a lot when they're discouraged, um, when they didn't accomplish one of their particular goals or, or they failed, had a moral failure or something, um, you know, some of them are, they've, they've got, the, the equipment isn't sufficient to get up the mountain. And we forget mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. They can't actually save themselves. They can't right. actually climb the mountain. Right. I made the mistake the first year of using the example of a, of a, a, a Pinto trying to climb a mountain uh, with two of the cylinders blown. Of course, they had no idea what a Pinto <laughs> was. So for those of you listening, it was a really bad car um, that had no power whatsoever. Um, and so you can't actually get up because you're not running on A, the proper fuel, and you don't have 
the proper size engine to get up, right? You need supernatural assistance for these things. And grace is just that. I wasn't made uh, to live a human life. I was made to live a, a divine life, to participate in divine life. That's a whole different kind of power. I mean, why in the world can the apostles do things like raise the guy on the steps to the temple? Or all the things, all the miracles that St. Paul did. Not by human nature, that's divine nature that they're participating in. Did you do any study on like the sacrament of holy orders and, mm. and Jesus's presence in the priest? Mm. You know, like he works, there's a promise, whatever, mm -hmm. that he's gonna be there, work through the priest. And somebody, I think Father Milady told me one time, there's something in St. Thomas about the presence of the good shepherd and the priest. Yes. Um, it's, it's, so let me back up one step. One of the images that the medievals use for the sacraments is, is an aqueduct, kind of a common image for them. Um, that there's a structure, especially like when there's a character, when the sacrament imparts a character, there's a character inside like a, like a structure, like an aqueduct, that's grace is coming through. Uh, when it imparts a character. But even when it doesn't, it's a good image of a, what they call a vis fluens, um, a flowing power. So in other words, when baptism takes place and the Holy Spirit implores, uh, em employs the, the water as, the, as, the, as a means of mediation, um, when the sacrament is over, the Holy Spirit's not, as it were, employing the water anymore. And it might be blessed water, but he's not using it. And <clears throat> it's a distinction between that sacrament and other sacraments and the priesthood. So the priesthood, Thomas describes, as not quite a conjoined instrument in the way in which <clears throat> Christ's humanity is a conjoined instrument. So the, the same way in which my hand is, I can legitimately say, is an instrument. I mean, the word that is employed is organ, right? So just like we have the organ that you play at Mass. Um, or the organs in our body, it's just the Greek word for instrument. And Thomas will talk about his humanity, the entire humanity, as being an instrument of his divinity. It's beautiful to think about. So when you think about instrumental causality, it's as simple as thinking about a, uh, you writing a letter. Um, on the one hand, you're confined on some level to the capacities of the pen that you use. On the other hand, it allows you to do things that you can't do without the pen. The analogy breaks down a little bit with God because he can do whatever he pleases, but nevertheless chooses to use an instrument to write in a particular way. And so the way in which the sacrament is different is that it's not a vis fluens. On the contrary, when Christ picks up a man, not because he has to, but because he chooses to, and elevates him to the priesthood, the way St. Thomas describes it is, it's an instrument in his hand that he never lets go of. Mm. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. So it's not as if the priest has a vis fluens, a flowing power that comes through him when he's doing the sacraments. Mm -hmm. That's true too, but he's never let go of. It's why it's why it's a character in the hand of Christ. Not quite the same as his own humanity, but since it's a share in his own priesthood, it's 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 very similar. Right. So we could say that not letting go applies to baptism, confirmation as well. Well, I think you can say that that the structure that is imparted in baptism and confirmation is, is similar. The difference is the kind of structure on some level that's set up, I suppose, right? Um, because the participation in, in Christ's uh, Christ headship is not given in the others, but it's true, because right. we don't get rid of those, right? You yeah. can't wash it away. 
Yeah, yeah. I said Julian the Apostate. I'm not sure if it's true. And maybe he had good mm -hmm. reason to do it, but they said that he <clears throat> attempted to bathe in bull's blood to get rid of his baptism. Trying to, get, trying to wash it away. Not all the seven seas are enough to wash it that incarnate upon my hands. Um, because you can't undo, ultimately, this, this branding, this sfragis, this seal, this character that God sets up inside of you. So the difference in the characters, at least in St. Thomas, which is the one I know the most, um, is that two of the structures that are created inside of you, quote unquote, we use the word structure, obviously it's not something physical, um, <clears throat> the particular grace that remains, two of them enable you, uh, configure you for divine worship to receive gifts. One of them configures you uh, for divine worship to give gifts, mm. at least according to St. Thomas, and that's the priesthood. Right. And as a principal mediator, um, he's made to give gifts to God's people. Right. I, I don't know if you emphasize this in your book, uh, but I thought it was interesting what you t said on the show about the, the, the word and the sacrament. You think of it in the sacraments, we always have some proclamation of the word. Mm. What is the relationship there mm. that, um, I don't know if, if you looked into mm. that much. <laughs> yeah, it's a big Cause, topic. Because I, I guess I, I'm fascinated too by, I listen to a lot of Protestant podcasts, not a lot, some, and, and I have Protestant friends here in the South, you know, and I'm always amazed, um, you know, their love of Scripture, their time spent in the Word, and how much they get out of it. Mm -hmm. You know, they might have, they, you know, most of them, I guess, have baptism, but it's like, um, you know, we've got all this other stuff we're talking about all the time, and they've gotten so much out of the word. And uh, I just feel like there's, um, you know, we could probably do that better as Catholics. Um, you know, try to get more, and I don't know, maybe understanding at a deeper level too, its presence in the sacraments and how all that works. Right. But, well, know. I mean, perhaps we could say that. On the one hand, we have the efficacy of the sacraments, the power of the sacraments. On the other hand, we, we have, <clears throat> you know, because they work by themselves, right? Exo preparato, as the phrase goes. But then we also have our receptivity to it. And so that the, the Lord's own parable was about seed falling on ground in terms of his word and the different kinds of ground that it finds. And so that maybe one of the reasons in which we don't uh, experience uh, the efficaciousness of the sacraments is because we haven't done the plowing of the ground by virtue of our prayer and the knowledge of sacred scripture and spending time with Christ that way. Because it wasn't the case for our fathers. I mean, the fathers of the church, the doctors of the church, the, middle, the, 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 the medieval scholars, they, I mean, St. Thomas had the entire scriptures memorized. I mean, they, when they'd say one word in one book, he would think of all the other places. Now, granted, he was a genius. But all the other places, he was a living concordance. Yeah. So they walked around in them so much like a garden. That That's how they can come up with all these typological, mm -hmm. allegorical, moral, tropological analogies to things. That Because they're seeing all the connections. They're interpreting Scripture with Scripture. And when they're receptive to his word like that, then when that word 
is united to matter and commanded by Christ, who is the minister of the sacrament, ultimately, um, that ground receives. Our Lady is the perfect example of this, of course, is because all of this is about receptivity to his word. The word can be efficacious, but I often think about, was Christ redeeming the world upon the cross? Absolutely. Was Christ received by the guards who stood by? No. Was Christ received by Our Lady who stood on the cross? Absolutely. So the objective grace is there. The objective reality is there. It's only being imparted in that sense, or at least received inside, the one who had received and maintained his word. Blessed is she who hears the word of God and keeps it. So I think part of our, our anemia is just that, is we expect the sacraments to do all the work. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I fall into that too. I think of that. Because it's true. Yeah. They're, 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 it's real. We know it's real. Right. Um, but at least St. Thomas would say we act as dispositive causes. Uh-huh. You know, that we dispose, still working with this grace, but we dispose yeah. the ground to receive the grace that's given to us. Right. And I, as, you know, preaching, it helps, you know, it forces you to, Meditate and mm, read the short readings. You know, so it does. It's been a great blessing. Yeah, life and hear what others said. And right, but, right. Um, I also want to ask you a little bit about your degree. You have a moral theology doctorate from uh, Santa Croce, and what was your thesis there? Mm. Um, it was on charity as a human and divine friendship in the thought of Saint Thomas Aquinas. It was a metaphysical and, and scriptural analysis of his thought. So. It was born really just out of my own question in meditating upon the scriptures. I recall that there was a young man who was a seminarian with me in seminary, and he became a priest. And one of his questions that he asked me when we were in seminary together was, and he understands that you can't take someone like John of the Cross, et cetera, literally you've got to, in the sense of um, that imagery of Christ as bridegroom, it doesn't work as easily for a guy. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a bit off-putting. Mm-hmm. A woman can sort of naturally go right. to that sort right. of language, but we have to, in some ways, abstract it from the physical to be able to have it exist on a, on a higher level. While I was thinking about that one time in prayer, I, I picked up um, the scriptures and I was, I was going to do my sort of uh, lecture divina, and I happened upon the 17th chapter of John's Gospel which is about Christ calling them friends. And it seemed like a really interesting category to call someone because we have a uh, sort of a derogatory understanding now of friendships. So you think about when when a girl says or a boy says, oh, we're just friends. Mm-hmm. Whereas Christ called his apostles friends in the highest form of love because no one has a greater love than to lay down his life for his friends. And so I thought, what if St. Thomas has something to say about this? <laughs> Little did I know, um, he had a lot to say about it. Um, but it was scattered throughout his works. And so yeah. um, when I did my doctorate, I worked under uh, the great Father Stephen Brock, who's a fantastic uh, philosopher and scholar at Santa Croce, Fathers of Opus Dei. And I first just went through, um, sort of worked backwards. I went through St. Thomas's commentary uh, on all the different passages of Scripture where the friendship is mentioned, especially that one on John. But then I found to understand that, I had to understand 
what he meant by particular concepts like communicatio, participation, likeness, form, etc. So I, then I had to get into the philosophical side and spent worked my way through back through Aristotle's understanding of friendship. So I kind of got down to the amino acids <laughs> of the building blocks of Thomas' understanding, working backwards. So if, when you read, the, not that anyone ever would, but if you were to read the doctorate, it begins where at the simplest, uh, in some ways it's complex, the, the philosophical principles, yeah. and works its way all the way up to uh, John's treatment, St. John's yeah. treatment in the gospel. But I, it was born really out of just a desire for me to want to become a better friend of Christ. Yeah. And maybe generally, what was Aristotle's treatment of friendship? So Aristotle um, basically um, sees, as you probably know, um, a number of different goods to the human person, different goods to which he can aspire. And when it comes to the highest good, which is he takes the highest activity in man, and says, well, the highest activity of man doing the, contemplating the highest thing. Philosophy. Right? It's philosophy, right? <laughs> it's sort of eudaimonia. It's kind of self-serving, though, too, right? A little bit, you know? Um, but he admitted in Book 8 of the Nicobachean Ethics, he just said that, and yet even if one had that, one would want friends. Yeah. In other words, what, do you, what happens to you when you want, when you see something, when something beautiful happens to you, something good happens to you? Well, nowadays we send a text or an Instagram, or a Snapchat, or what we call someone, if you're arcane like me, um, right. and tell them about it, right? Because right. you, you don't want to just have it to yourself. Yeah. You're the kind of creature that wants to diffuse the good that you experience. Right. Right? And that's the joy of the Christian life. Yeah. Um, but even Aristotle understood that. Yeah. And so he's talked about the fact that we, we want friendship, um, even if we have the highest good. So it's, it's somehow necessary for our happiness. And he spoke about it as... It must be some form of common life, and not the kind of common life that beasts have, right? Because they can all be together in a herd, yet there's no real communication. There's no, there's no shared life. He used the word transit as communicatio. And so then he asked, okay, what is the communicatio their friends have? Well, okay, they have to, they can be friendships of pleasure, utility, or friendships in the good, right? Genuine friendships of, worthy of the name. And not that friendships of utility and pleasure are bad, because that's the way we have most of our friendships in the sense of it doesn't mean to be abusive to someone. It just means that some people I just, I'm with because we both play tennis, mm -hmm. right? And that's the communicatio that we have. It's the shared life that we have. If one of us stops playing tennis, we're not going to be friends anymore because that's, that's what we do together. Right. Or one of utility um, where think about going to the grocery store. I mean, it's, it, it's an exchange to some degree of friendship when yeah. someone has helped me get my groceries to get mm -hmm. home to my family, etc. Um, and so when we're speaking about a friendship of, in the good, you're talking about one that's based in virtue. And so there we have this weird capacity, this unique capacity, not just to will good to myself, but to will good to another. So that all rational love, according to Aristotle, St. Thomas, terminates in another rational creature. It's a really profound thing to think about. So you're drinking a bottle of Pellegrino, right? You could pick up the bottle and say, um, I love Pellegrino. Is that the same thing as I love my wife, I love my, the friars here, I love my children, I love my priest friends, I love my God? Well, it's analogous. 
But what's the difference? You're not willing good to the Pellegrino, but you are willing good to someone. You're willing the Pellegrino, which you see as a good, to you, mm. which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. right? You're enjoying the Pellegrino. You recognize it as a good, and you will it to you, which is a form of love. Right. In this case, it's self-love. And so Aristotle says all love is based upon love we have for ourselves. That sounds really selfish, right, to mm -hmm. a modern ear. Um, because for a modern, uh, really tainted, quite frankly, um, by the work of a guy by the name of Negrin, um, on Eros and Agape and things of that nature, that, that all love that is willing good to oneself is therefore unworthy or selfish. But even the gospel, you love thy neighbor as thyself. As thyself, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Right? It's right in there. Yeah. Because I can't, what good am I willing to another if mm -hmm. I don't recognize the good that I would will to myself? Mm -hmm. um, the only difference is when we discover who God is, who is all the good that we are ourselves, because he's creating it, and yeah. infinitely more. We yeah. actually love him more than we love ourselves. Yeah. Um, if we love him rightly. And St. Yeah. Thomas says we even naturally do so. So um, Aristotle sort of concludes by saying that I have to be willing good, not just to myself, that's first, but I have to be willing good to another. I will the good that I will for myself to another, mm. the essence of love. And it can't just be willing it, it has to be known. And it can't just be known, it has to be reciprocated for there to be friendship. Now, you can love someone and will them good and even be beneficent to them, right? Do, doing good things for them. If they don't know it, you're not going to get anywhere. There's not a shared life. Or if they don't return it, there's not a shared life because friendship is free. Yeah. Do you think sometimes, I wonder, like the presence of Our Lady at the foot of the cross mm. I know it's not strictly necessary, but you wonder a kind of fullness of having it reciprocated to Christ, this outflowing of charity for humanity. And there you have the Immaculate Conception who loves perfectly in a human way. Yes. You wonder, is that necessary in some loose sense hmm. of, uh, for the completeness of redemption? You hmm. know? That's a really but, interesting uh, question. In other words, it's, it's almost like a certainly is the greatest sign. I mean, St. Thomas says the crucifixion isn't even necessary. That God could have saved us in some other fashion. Yeah, right. But he says it's the most fitting. When Thomas right. says fitting, he doesn't mean that's just a nice way to do it. Yeah. He means it's, it's the most beautiful. Right. It's the most right. perfect. And I think what you're getting at, if I'm understanding correctly, is that for Christ to be perfectly benevolent, perfectly beneficent, in the work of the cross, for that to be right there received perfectly right. and reciprocated, at least insofar as a human being can. Right. That's right. the essence of divine charity, yeah. divine friendship. I think you're right. Well, Two, you know, we work with the sisters up in Hansville and Mother Angelica, you know, they wear wedding rings, right? And, right. and Mother Angelica hammered this home. I mean, she always spoke of herself being the spouse of Christ. And as you mentioned earlier, they image that bridal nature of the people of God, the church. And um, and it does sound like a higher calling, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And it does sound like more when you speak mm -hmm. of spouse than friend. Mm -hmm. I wonder if the ancients sometimes, I mean, I just <laughs> did, the, you know, the some philosophy back in seminary, but Sometimes, you know, they didn't seem like they spoke that well of marriage sometimes, yeah, you know. True. It was almost like a secondary thing to friendship. Mm. And uh, 
It's like at our modern approach, though, you know, we hold this like supreme. <laughs> That's a really good point. <laughs> I mean, you know, in some ways they were so natural about it, right? It, it wasn't necessary for survival. Uh -huh. We've made it such that it's not, but yeah. that's an aberration. Yeah. Um, I mean, just on a natural law level, right? Why do you have to have something stable? How else are you going to protect the kids? Right. How are you going to feed them? How are you yeah. going to raise them? I mean, the poor woman can't be out there trying to grab, grab food somewhere right. when she's just given birth. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so unbelievably obvious that it yeah. takes a modern culture like ours to, to obfuscate <laughs> this. It's so obvious, you know? Um, so I, I just, I don't think, I think that the sort of romanticized nature of, of human love has gone through various phases. It wasn't always necessarily concomitant with the understanding of the necessity of marriage. Um, but clearly you've got things like the Song of Songs, right? I mean, that's as ancient as yeah. ancient comes. Um, even St. Thomas, you know, really surprising passage to me. <sighs> now I don't remember where it was. I believe it was in, his, in the sentences. Um, he says that the highest form of friendship, because he says all human love is friendship, period. Mm. Uh, because it's, it's willing good to another, beneficence, yeah. mutually known. There's a couple of pieces to it, delight in the person's company, um, and concord, which is the sharing of a, a mind on important things. Um, but he says in the sentences that the highest form of friendship in this life is marriage. Mm. And his reason for doing so is that you, you have to have the most intimate shared life to make life. Mm. Um, now, there's a caveat to that because then he'll talk about religious life is the highest form of friendship in this life that's supernatural. Yeah. You know, because yeah. you and I are ushered into what marriage is an image, go back to the sacraments here, what right. marriage is a symbol or a sign of, the religious is supposed to be the reality of. Hmm. Yeah, sometimes we put the cart before the horse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, like uh, let's, on moral theology, um, I remember I was asking Father Donald Hergerty, he was here recently, and uh, and he was, I was saying, like, out of Veritatis Splendor, you know, he thought, you know, the heart of it was this understanding of their intrinsic evils. Mm. You know? And it feels like we're kind of entering into that struggle again in the church. Mm. And uh, about recognizing, I, I mean, it just seems like to me, you know, if we're all trying to figure out what's the right thing to do here, what's the right pastoral approach, what's the right teaching here, is to bring in some moral principles <laughs> right, <laughs> and say right, this right. is always right. wrong. Or, you know, <laughs> so, right. I mean, it, it seems like it just gets so confusing. And um, I, I don't know, it's, I just keep coming back to that. It's like, aren't there just principles here to guide us yes, in this? Yes. And, uh, Absolutely. I mean, I think that Veritatis Splendor was the greatest work, along with, uh, in terms of its clarity and its precision, along with the Evangelium Vitae, um, you know, probably of his pontificate. I, I personally, of course, I'm a little biased because I'm a moral theologian. I, I go back and back to that document so often because it does just that. You have clarity again. Mm -hmm. And confusion is not of God. And it doesn't mean, and John Paul II wasn't he's characterized sometimes by people who don't read the document. Um, 
as wanting to give sort of just easy, cut and dry, black and white answers to everything. On the contrary, he recognizes in that document the very difficult uh, reality of coming to moral clarity on things when they get deep into particulars. Um, so when you're talking about a precept or a, a high-level uh, form of law, like, like for example, right, the, the first principle of practical reason, right, that to do good and to avoid evil and pursue the good, etc. Um, don't do evil that don't do any evil that you can't do any evil that good can come from it. Things like that. You work down to those second level precepts. You've got ten commandments. Okay, well, I can't commit adultery, but you're down way down here into the thick of things, and you said, don't we have some principles that got us absolutely? So you're way down. And you've got a very confusing case. You were married, but the person left you, and you're in a weird position right now. And and I can't even find them. I can't get the annulment done. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And would God want me to be lonely like this? And maybe he wants me to get married anyway, et cetera, et cetera. It's a hard case. Right? No mm. question about it. But you got a principle you can't defy, right. which is you're presumably, without the declaration of the church, helping you to investigate and declare and define and certify that you're not married. Um, you're a married person. We're holding you to that because you mm -hmm. can't commit adultery. Mm -hmm. right? Nowhere down here does that get bent. Mm -hmm. that, that principle get bent and say, well, except in this case. Um, so all of these attempts that I see at, at quote unquote a pastoral approach, um, how, how can you say to someone that this is the pastoral approach if it is directly contrary to the commandment of God? You are setting that person up, right, for moral failure. It's never going to bless them, and it's never going to lead them to eternal life. It is the absolute opposite, it seems to me, mm -hmm. of a pastoral response, withholding right. the truth about themselves. Yeah, I remember Benedict said it one time so simply. He said, "Well, uh, the truth is pastoral." <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Did you study at Santa Croce about you know, John Paul and his teachers and cyclical marriage? Uh, Familiars consorts him about the gradualness or gradualism. Gradualism or yeah. gradualness of the law, the law of gradualness. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, it was in his epistolic exhortation, you know, Familiaris consorts oh. commentary on the, the synod on, the, on marriage and the family. And it's an old discussion uh, toward the time of Alphonsus Liguori and others, if I remember correctly. And what the simple, simple way to put it is that um, law of gradualness simply means that if I find the person, like in the situation of adultery, what's the first thing that I can, I can get them to do? Mm -hmm. Well, it may not be to stop committing adultery. Mm -hmm. right? It may begin by, okay, let's just start praying the rosary. Right. Right? Get some grace in there. Let make something happen, some movement toward right. God. Um, but it doesn't mean that the law itself is gradual. Yeah. The law is the law. It's either right. true or it's not. Right. Um, so you can't change the law by that or, 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 or weaken the law by virtue of, yeah. of intentionality or consequences or whatever. Intentionality is the big one, right? Because you, you ask any, any 16, 17, 18-year-old, um, put a hard case to them, and the reason that they will tell you they're doing something is always they're always going to the intention. Mm -hmm. Well, why did, what are you doing? 
well, I was attempting to help. No, no. What are you doing? <laughs> What's the object of choice? They yeah. always answer with why they're doing it. Right. Two really different things. Um, and so Virgin Splendor was very keen on saying that the moral object, I mean, the object of choice, not why you're doing it, but what you're doing, also has a choice involved. Yeah. Also has moral content. As yeah. a matter of fact, it's primary. Right. So. Yeah, and I think, yeah, when you were talking too, I was just thinking of like parents I know that are trying to bring their adult children you know, back yeah. into the church and they're they're just rejoicing over any step in any the right step. direction. You know, that makes sense. To, you know? Yeah, like was, that's a natural. Well, Pope Benedict got himself in some hot water because it, you know, when he was the reigning pontiff, because it was claimed by the media that he was allowing for uh, the use of condoms in a, in a homosexual relationship. And all he was saying is what, what that text says yeah. about the law of gradualness. The yeah. At least it's a sign, right? At least it's a movement that they don't want to hurt the person that right. they're with. I mean, <laughs> right. it's, it's something. Right, right. Because <laughs> it right. doesn't really matter if it's contraceptive <laughs> or not because there's nothing to contracept. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So. Well, thank you so much, and thanks for all your work here these no, couple of days. You're most and welcome. It's great, great to be with you all. Yeah. And uh, we'll be praying for you. Thank you. God bless. Take care.